Well, thank you, Frank and Jason, uh, for that update. Uh, I couldn't agree with Jason more. What a, what a challenging call. And I just have no doubt that the Lord will call some of you to that. Um, on a personal note, uh, Frank, is, as Jason said, was here for 15 years. Uh, and Frank is the one who hired me. So you can blame him. Um, <laughs> in fact, uh, Frank has been in my life. Uh, I've known of him since middle school, uh, known him since high school. And uh, Frank and Audrey uh, did our pre-marriage counseling uh, before we were married. And um, so Frank and Audrey, thank you so much for being here with us. They spent some time with our leadership team yesterday. I'm so grateful for uh, the years that we got to serve together. I got to serve under you um, and just the development that you poured into not just myself, but this team. We just have the fondest of memories uh, of those years of working together. And so uh, it's fun to have you back and have you here on this, on this stage. Well, we are back in the book of Acts this morning in a series entitled New Beginnings. Really excited this morning to dive into Acts chapter 2. And what we're going to see this morning is a supernatural event that is the birth of the church. And kind of glean what we can learn from that. What we're going to see uh, in terms of how the church is born is that it's through communication, or we could even use the word proclamation, We'll see first that the church is born through divine, even supernatural communication or proclamation. That it it grows and it's established on apostolic communication and proclamation. And that the church today, that includes you and me if you're a believer in Jesus today, fulfills its mission through our communication and proclamation. So that's kind of what we're endeavoring to this morning. This is an amazing passage in scripture. It's a pivotal moment in the history of the church. And let me just say it explicitly this morning. What we read this morning, we believe is a narrative of what actually took place. We believe that these words are true, not fable or mythology or something akin to that. And so with that in mind, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna dive right into this text. Our God and Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, uh, with humble hearts, Lord, to receive what you have for us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you speak to each one of us as only you can do? And I pray that the the things that you've laid on my heart this morning would be of you and anything else would just be blown away. Lord, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity to just gather, to worship, to be your your people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's read together beginning in verse one of chapter two of Acts. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, a crowd came together. And was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Perga and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But some sneered and said, they're drunk on new wine. You know, we can ask that same question this morning. What does this mean? What was taking place in this 
divine communication, supernatural event that took place. And understand that this is, this is the birth of the church. The church did not exist before this. And Jesus had said that the church would come. We'll look at that passage specifically in a moment. And this is the moment when that happens. And so there's this event that takes place and note that it hits both of their primary senses, that they hear this violent, mighty rushing wind. Some scholars have said it, it's akin to, to a tornado uh, hitting, hitting a, a community. But it was also something that they could see. There was a visual representation of this symbolic of this divine Communication that tongues of fire came and then separated on each person. And what, do, what we have here is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, both on the, the community of the disciples and those with them, likely up to 120 people, and also on them individually, as each believer was baptized in the Holy Spirit and the church was born. This is a, a fulfillment of what John the Baptist had said. In Matthew's gospel, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me, speaking of Jesus, is more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to remove his sandals, and he himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so these tongues of fire symbolize the purifying, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, of God setting apart his people a New Testament people for a new beginning, for a new mission, the church. It's akin to and reminiscent of Isaiah the prophet when the live coal is taken from the altar of God and touches his lips. And not only does that, that touching of that coal uh, commission him to a new message, to a message to his people, but it also sanctifies and purifies him. And we see this in a few places in Scripture. And so we have this event that we believe is historic, that this actually took place. This was the first time that the, the Spirit of God was poured out in this way. Unlike the Old Testament, when an individual at particular times and particular places would receive the Holy Spirit, like Samson in the defeat of the Philistines, or Deborah in her judging of Israel, or on and on. Now, all who believe the Holy Spirit is poured out. And this divine communication results in the communication of these disciples, right? They begin to speak what, it's called, what it says here, the mighty acts of God. And I think there's really something fascinating and intimate by way of application in the language that's used here. Almost equally represented are two Greek words. Glossa, which we've talked about recently, means languages. And dialectos, which means dialects, sub-languages, sub if you will. Here's why I think this is really important. Note that the text talks about 12 or 15 or something uh, different places in the Roman Empire that these Jews had come from and that each person could understand the message of Christ in their own language and dialect. Why is that important? Let me illustrate it this way. If you were to take someone from Southie or maybe from down east Maine or Fall River, right, and you were to put them in a room with a cup of coffee with somebody from the deep bayou in Louisiana, they would be speaking the same language, but there'd be a lot of confusion, right? Because they speak a different dialect of the same language. And I think what the scripture is saying to us, and it bears truth to the rest of the New Testament is, in all of scripture, is that God speaks here in the birth of the church at the level of an intimacy that's right down to the individual person in the subculture and the dialect in which they live. And he does that today, maybe not in this same supernatural way, but how many times have we heard when we've preached Zach that someone will say, it was like God was talking to me exactly. 
maybe even online in your living room or wherever you're watching from. And I think this is an, just a reminder of that. And so if, if you're wandering in your life right now or you're not sure about God or who Jesus is or you're new to the Bible, God wants to speak to you today in your language and your dialect, if you will. But what is the message and the content that is being spoken about here? I want to remind you that Acts, as we talked about in our opening week, the book of Acts is written by Dr. Luke, right? Dr. Luke wants to write this thorough account. But his first book, the Gospel of Luke, in his own words, is about all that Jesus began to do and teach, whereas the book of Acts is about all that Jesus continued to do and teach after he ascended to heaven through the Holy Spirit. And what is the content of the message? Well, Jesus prophesied it himself in Luke's gospel. Listen to what he said. He said, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You, he says to his disciples, are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what the Father promised. And he tells them to stay in the city until this event we just read about, we're studying this morning, happens. Jesus has prophesied that this moment will take place, that he will ascend to heaven, that the Holy Spirit will be poured out and that a message will be proclaimed. What is that message? Hear me clearly this morning. That Jesus Christ suffered and died for you. That he was raised to life, that you might have a new beginning and that repentance and forgiveness of sins and an eternal life filled with purpose and hope and meaning might be your future destiny from the moment that you believe in him. That is the message that is being proclaimed here. And the fact that the Holy Spirit enables that and illumines that to all these different languages and dialects allows the gospel to begin to spread and the church is born. It's a profound, profound thing. Now, you know that the Holy Spirit still baptizes believers today? Now, this was, this was the very beginning and birth of the church. It was an all-at-once moment. It was a supernatural moment. But this still happens. We believe if you look at the full counsel of the New Testament in the life of the believer today, in the moment that they are converted or believe, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians. He says, in him, in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed that when you take that step of faith of saying, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. I receive what you did on the cross for me on my behalf, that the spirit of the living God, the spirit that Paul says, the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead comes and dwells within you. That still happens today. And for some people, by the way, it is, it is a, it, there are physical manifestations. There are fireworks, if you will. For other people, it's just a general sense of calm and peace and knowing that something's different. The Holy Spirit is still baptizing believers today. And by the way, this is why we practice water baptism, right? Water baptism is a, is a physical symbol of what has already taken place in my heart and life. That I'm identifying with Christ's death as I go in the water. I'm identifying with his resurrection and new life as I come out of the water. And what has happened in me, that Jesus is now living within. And so unlike in Acts 2, where this is the beginning in the Genesis, when we are baptized by the Holy Spirit, we join a company of already baptized folks. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, 
whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and you can add whatever other category you want to that, and we were all given one spirit to drink. You know, at baptism, we've used the analogy in the past, speaking of water baptism, of kind of like putting on the jersey of the team. Being baptized in the Holy Spirit when you come to know Christ is kind of like being drafted onto a winning team. Right? Imagine a team that, that is a high-performing winning team, and I wouldn't say that, you know, let's just put it this way, at the end of all days that we fully win and have full victory. But right, it's a team that, that Christ himself has commissioned and it's a winning team. Unfortunately, the best I got for you this time of year is, or in this last year, if you're in the Northeast, is the Philadelphia Eagles, okay? It's not been a good year for New England and or New York teams. But nonetheless, imagine this team that's a winning team. And you're drafted onto that team. And as you join that team, they're already a team. They're already performing. They're already winning. But you play a key part. There's an empty spot. There's a role that has been left open for you. And Christ has set you apart and baptized you in the Holy Spirit that you might become a part of that team. One other thought on baptism in the Holy Spirit. We want to distinguish baptism in the Holy Spirit from being filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to reckless living or debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's the idea of the, the continual filling of the Holy Spirit here. Now, there's some difference doctrinally in certain streams of the church with regard to baptism of the Holy Spirit. But here at GBC, we believe that that happens one time in the conversion of the life of the believer, but that the filling of the Holy Spirit could happen thousands of times in the life of a Christian. And it ought to be something that we are seeking and desiring each day as we spend time in God's word, that he would fill us anew with his Holy Spirit. And again, sometimes that's like tingles and physical, and lots of times it's just a sense of purpose and direction or God's leading and so on and so forth. It's interesting, if you talk to someone, like in part of our CR program or somewhere else that has a background in addiction, they will tell you, if they've had an encounter with Christ and given their lives to Jesus, that there is no high like the high of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And we should all seek that. I'll tell you in my own life that when I'm facing a, a, a significant decision or we're wrestling with something as elders or, or I'm, I'm bringing God's word into any situation, no matter how small, and even on Sunday morning, you know, a lot of times when you're singing the last song, I'm back there and I'll posture myself and just say, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Speak through me. Let these words be yours and, and not mine. May we be a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit. Another illustration of this, uh, one theologian said that being filled with the Holy Spirit or not having the Holy Spirit is kind of like being a, a, a fine luxury car or sports car or whatever, um, whatever your genre, if you're even into cars. But you know, this beautiful vehicle, let's say a Rolls-Royce Royce Silver Ghost, right? Beautiful vehicle without an engine. You know, it, has, it possesses all the beauty and it seems to have all the functionality. And so you can have education and ministry calling and, and Bible knowledge and all these things. But without the Holy Spirit, it's like that car without an engine. It has no power and it's not taking anybody anywhere. We don't do this on our own. Spirit of the living God. I want to switch to some application here this morning. I want you to note in this Acts 2 text that there's a variety of responses to what happens here. 
right? Some people are astounded, uh, others are perplexed, and, and some just absolutely mock what's going on. And, and I want to turn that into an application for you and me. When I, when I encounter the miracle of the gospel, when you talk to somebody who says, this is where I was, and this is where I am now, my life has been changed and transformed by Jesus Christ, how do you respond to that? How do I respond to that? Does it move you to tears and to worship? Are you astounded by what God is doing? Or is there a sense of being perplexed and, and wanting to know more? Now, there's two kinds of skepticism, right? There's healthy skepticism. If you're new to this whole Jesus thing, you might have healthy skepticism where you, you hear these stories, you learn about the Bible, and you go, I need to know more about that because there's something in me that, that desires to understand that. That's healthy skepticism. Unhealthy skepticism, and I would caution you against this if, if this is you, is as you hear the testimony of someone's changed life or you learn something from what the scripture teaches when you immediately start putting up walls of yeah, but. Because you don't want the spirit of God to deal with what's in here. And of course, lastly, do you respond with sneering or mockery or whatever it might be? I would pray that the Lord would soften your heart the miracle that happens here that's tangible to the sight and sound of the people still happens in the lives of people today. There is no miracle greater than the transformation of a hardened, human, sinful, rebellious heart to one who is soft to the things of God and, and is completely repurposed to the kingdom. And so that brings us to our second point. The church grew, or we could say was established and founded, we talked about this week one, with apostolic communication. I love this line. It's the title of our sermon today. Peter stood up. It moves me to think about Peter in this moment, standing up with the 11. He raised his voice and he proclaimed to them, fellow Jews and you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Pay attention to my words. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. church is born through divine, even supernatural communication. The church is founded, grows, and is established on apostolic communication. And Peter stands up. Now, I want to make a quick distinction. We've talked about this before, but I want to draw this point out a little bit more. There's a difference between capital A, apostle, or apostolic communication, and lowercase a, if you will. The Bible teaches that there are no new apostles in the spirit of uh, Peter, Paul, James, and John. In other words, there are no apostles today with a capital A in the sense that they are authoring scripture, establishing the church for the first time, and or have seen the risen Christ personally. That was the generation, Acts is very clear, on which God established this new thing called the church. However, there is apostolic gifting. And apostolic gifting is, is uh, it, it appears just by observation of what the New Testament teaches, is sort of entrepreneurial and visionary in nature. People who have apostolic gifting are those who are taking the gospel or, or a gospel witness into places it doesn't currently exist. We think of, think of uh, people like church planters, right? Church planters who take the gospel or a gospel witness into a, a city or a town or a village or a rural area where there is no gospel witness. They will often possess, almost always, apostolic gifting of being able to rally people to themselves, being able to cast vision, being able to, to start initiatives, to network within communities. God just gifts them with this at the spiritual level. The second most clear example, this is missionaries. 
missionaries who bring that apostolic gifting into a context that's foreign to their own native culture. And by the way, in particular parts of the world that are hostile to the gospel, we believe that even the miraculous on the level of the New Testament is oftentimes given to those people. I'll give you an example of that. We've had people on, I don't think this stage yet, but the stage in the old building in the the past, who testified to the fact that as they brought the gospel into a, a, a hostile Muslim context in particular, that God gave them the ability to the miraculous. Why? So that God's man or woman would be set apart as uniquely belonging to Almighty God, having the words and the message of Almighty God. And so we don't necessarily believe that these gifts have ceased, but I will tell you, I am a skeptic whenever I hear of the miraculous in a way that minimizes Christ or his gospel. I'm immediately, red flags are going up for me. And they should. The third way, and it's not new, but I think there's a new generation, is um, those that are, are bringing an entrepreneurial bent toward the gospel in the marketplace. There are folks, and many of them are young people, who are bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ into the DNA of their their business culture and right into the marketplace in a very missional way. There are other examples, but those are a couple. Small A versus big A, apostle. But I want to talk about Peter for a minute. I told you the title of our message is Peter Stood Up. Uh, We've talked about Peter a lot here this, uh, on this platform and from the pulpit. There's a lot of Peter in the New Testament. And in a lot of ways, I think Peter is both the least likely and the most likely to be the first apostle who opens his mouth to, for the church to be founded on. Now, we know from Matthew 16, Jesus actually said that Peter would be the guy. But how is he the least likely? Well, Peter, if you know the New Testament, and if you don't, I really encourage you, read Mark and read John in the, the, of the two Gospels. Gospel of Mark, Gospel of John. Peter was always standing up. Peter was always the guy standing up and and opening his mouth. In fact, Peter is the guy who took a sword and chopped the ear off of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, when Jesus was being arrested. And you can almost see Jesus going, Peter. (laughs) Peter's the guy at the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are there has this more awkward than Michael Scott moment when he says like, hey, let's build some shelters. You guys can hang out. He can't help himself. Peter is the one in the courtyard. And we believe within within the sound of Jesus' trial, when he's being questioned about being affiliated, associated with Jesus, he denies him vehemently three times. And the last time the Bible says, with curses, swearing, foul language. I don't know him. Peter's the least likely. Peter? But you know, I think Peter helps me understand why God can use me. Because I think because of the redemptive nature of what God can do and what we learn of Peter in John chapter 21, it highlights God's redemption. And and Jesus actually repurposes all of Peter's brashness, all of his impulsiveness You see, there's another time when Peter stands up. In John chapter 21, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's on the beach, right? And the disciples are on the boats and there's this encounter and Peter realizes it's Jesus and he's alive. And he stands up in the boat and he jumps in the water and swims to shore. And Jesus in his great compassion and purpose reinstates Peter. And of course, it had to be 
Peter. Because the gospel has to be spoken and proclaimed. Yes, we want to live in such a way that others see that we're different. Yes, we want to love in such a way that we come alongside people other, the world would reject. But eventually there are opportunities that the Spirit of God gives us to speak the name of Jesus. And the lesson of Peter is to stand up and to be willing to speak. I, I have this belief that it's speculation. It's not it's explicitly in the scripture, but I have this belief that in the three years that Peter was walking with Jesus, that in those awkward, bombastic moments, that Jesus had this wry little smile because he knew. He knew exactly how he had made Peter and exactly this purpose that he had for Peter. Brothers and sisters, he, he knows exactly how he's made you. He knows the ways you've blown it and your insecurities and all of that. Peter's almost given as, he's a real historical character, but he's kind of hyperbolic, right? He's this like extreme example of someone that God can redeem and use. If he can use Peter, if he can redeem Peter, he can redeem you. He can use you. So by way of application, what, is, what does he know perfectly about me? How can God use all that I am? Personality flaws, temperament, skills, failures. And Paul says in Romans, quoting from Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of them who bring good news. Who is it in your life with all of your mess that God might be calling you to speak the name of Jesus? into their life, maybe through the lens of your mess, by the way, and what God has done. It brings us to our last point. The church fulfills its mission with our communication. And so Peter quotes from Joel chapter two, observing what's happening here, saying these people aren't drunk. This is a, a reference to Joel chapter two. He says this, it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke and the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now there's a lot of discussion at the scholarly level about whether this passage is fulfilled in the Pentecost, the tongues of fire and the speaking of the languages fully, whether it's fulfilled partially or, or what have you. And I think that Joel 2 is an indicator that there's a new beginning that there's the beginning of the fulfillment of this prophecy. And the reason I, I feel that is that uh, there's universal language used in that Joel, Joel 2 passage, that all men and all, all people, and this is a small group of Galileans, right? That, that the word goes out and it begins to multiply after this moment. So I think this is a, the beginning of the fulfillment, to say nothing of the fact that verses 19 and 20 seem to indicate future stuff. But nonetheless, no matter where you stand on that, Peter kind of commandeers this passage of scripture prophetically and says, what you're witnessing is a move of the spirit that Joel talked about way back when. And then he does something really fascinating. It's where we're gonna end this morning. And Zach will pick up the rest of Peter's, by the way, this is the first sermon in the New Testament by, after Christ, right? Zach will cover the rest of this uh, in a couple weeks. And, and, um, but Peter says this, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Now, in the original context, those words are spoken of this prophecy in reference to Yahweh, to Jehovah. Here, Peter is applying these words to Christ. And so Peter's using his language of, if we were to say this in Christianese, right, if you're new to the church, there's a lot, of, a lot of uniquely Christian language, right? I mean, we sing about things like being washed in the blood. There's some weird things that until you understand the Bible, understand the gospel are odd. But we use language like, hey, when did you get saved? Or when did you accept Christ? Or at what point did you trust Christ as your savior? John in his gospel uses the language of believe and receive what Christ has done into your life. Paul in the letter to the Romans talks about believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. This is kind of Peter's version of that. It's as if the New Testament wants us to understand in whatever way possible, every language, every dialect, right? So I want to break this down for us this morning. Peter says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Everyone. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic background. It doesn't matter your religious or your belief background. It does not matter what you have done. It does not matter what people do not know about you. Everyone, if you draw breath this morning and are within the sound of my voice here or online, Peter, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the first century, down to 2023, says everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Everyone who calls. In other words, the gospel is not passive. Once you come to understand that Jesus Christ has died on the cross for your sins and risen to life to give you new life, you have a responsibility to respond. There is no not responding, and we either need to receive or reject this message. Not only as truth, but as being for me. Everyone who calls, we have to respond to the claim that Christ has made once we know and understand that. But Peter says, everyone who calls on whom? On the name of the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. On the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who can transform hearts and lives. Jesus is the only one who can forgive sin. Jesus is the only one who can change your eternal destiny. Jesus is the only one who can overcome whatever the baggage or the addiction or the struggle or whatever it is that you have. He is the only one. In fact, in just a couple chapters, we'll be reading in Acts 4 that salvation is found in no one else under heaven or in any name given among men whereby we must be saved. Only Jesus. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God is able to the task of your salvation and mine. Paul talks about the fact that, that God will bring to completion our salvation. There is the sense that the moment in which we trust Christ as Savior, that we are saved. And there's a sense in the Greek tenses in, in the New Testament that we continue to be saved. And there's a sense that when, when the consummation of all things takes place and God puts all this messed up world to right, that we will be saved. It's happening in all three time zones, if you will. And this is what uh, Hebrews indicates in Hebrews chapter 7. It says that he is able to save completely to the uttermost, some versions will say. In other words, perpetually through, through all of the crazy of our world, through all of our own propensity to rebel and fall back into old patterns, he is able to hold us and to sustain us and to save us to the uttermost. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm gonna ask you this morning, have you called on the name of the Lord? 
Have you at some point in your life, maybe you've been going to church a really long time and you do all the things, but you never had a moment where you stopped and said, Jesus, I'm all in. Take, take me. I, I turn it from me and turn it to you. I want to walk with you for the rest of my days. If you've never had that moment, today's the day. Today's the day. I want to invite you when I say amen or after our final words this morning to make a beeline for the front. We've got elders and we'll have some wives and some staff here that can pray with you and just say, I'm ready to call in the name of the Lord. We want to pray with you and that your new beginning would be today, October 29, 2023. To those of you who know and love Jesus, but maybe you recognize you've been off mission. Maybe you can't think of the last time you've mentioned the name of Jesus outside of church. And I don't say that as a guilt trip. This is passage is honing in on that. Let the Holy Spirit, if you're feeling shame, that's from the evil one. If you're feeling conviction, that's from the Holy Spirit. And if you're ready to get back on mission, we're not living for this life or for our careers or even raising our children or whatever it is. All of those things are good. Then I want to encourage you to come down front receive some prayer, just say, I need to get back on mission. We're all in this together, brothers and sisters. If you're ready for today to be your day for a new beginning, or you need to get back on mission, I want to invite you to come and pray with someone in the front as soon as we're done this morning. Let's pray together. God, what happened at Pentecost is so powerful. Help us to never lose sight of the fact that you can do the miraculous even today. And Lord, I ask that you do that in maybe the hearts or the life of one person here this morning. Maybe somebody online who writes in and says to our friend who's online, I'm ready to call on the name of the Lord. God, for those of us that know and love you, Lord, just confess that sometimes we get off mission. Other things are more important. And that's wrong. And we repent. Hear our cry, oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.